If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is uh, not Sean Connery, because uh, if it were, I would be extremely old. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to listen to podcasts about your favorite movies that you have never seen yet, uh, join us for the 4.30 movie, and perhaps we'll have another Bond week. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't already picked up the hardcover edition of The 50-Year Mission, it's time for you to go out and get the paperback version of The 50-Year Mission, which is just out in paperback from St. Martin's Press. This is the complete oral history of Star Trek, the first 25 years, from me and Ed Gross. And if you think you know everything there is to know about Star Trek, think again. The 50-Year Mission out in paperback now. And if you can't read, the audiobook is still available. Hey, are you Darren Docterman from the 430 movie? Why, why, yes, I am. Well, I recognize you because I have the Electric Now app, and I get to see all these great Electric Surge podcasts on video for the first time ever. I'm delighted. I'm delighted that uh, you came up to me and said hello. Well, I got to tell you, how can I watch... All these incredible podcasts, like Inglorious Trexperts, The Best Movies Never Made, and uh, other things. Well, you can find us on uh, Distro and on uh, uh, the Electric Now app. And Stir. And Stir, see, I, stir I, I knew you knew it. I did know. Because I'm not really a stranger <laughs> on the street. I'm Mark A. Altman, your co-host. <laughs> well, maybe I should have been watching these podcasts all along. I would have recognized you. Join us on Electric Now, currently streaming on Distro TV and Stir, and coming soon to the Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark K. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. We didn't talk about the fact that when you first started writing, you used the name DC. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why that was and sort of the Mad Men culture of the 60s. Maybe give us a sense of what the industry was like then, and particularly for a woman breaking in, and um, you know what Hollywood in general was like uh, at that time. At the time I came in, there were very few women writers doing action-adventure. Margaret Armand was one. Um, Lee Brackett in film, uh, but there are very few actual uh, women writers doing action-adventure. Uh, most women at that time were either writing the romances or the daytime soaps, or they wrote comedy, very often with a male partner. Uh, I, like Margaret Armand and Lee Brackett, was writing alone. Uh, these are my stories. These are the ones I wanted to tell. Uh, the first few I wrote for The Tall Man, and um, the State Frontier Circus, and I did a rewrite on Shotgun Slade. Uh, but those were all for people I knew. So they, you know, I used Dorothy C. Fontana on those first six episodes. And then I found where I was trying, and I had an agent, uh, they were saying, oh, I don't think she can write our show. I don't know. But why not? Well, she's a woman. Okay, fine. Uh, so I wrote Ben Casey, and um, I put D.C. Fontana on it. You know, figuring, well, They'll at least read it without knowing I'm a woman. 
and it was about uh, Ben Casey suffering a, an appendicitis attack and being placed in a ward with uh, Cesar Romero as a homeless man, uh, Billy Mooney as a kid recovering from surgery, and Tom Bosley as a man who had been hit on the street by a car who thought he was a leprechaun. <laughs> and I had great fun with that. Uh, and they liked it. They just bought it. And I left D.C. from Montana on it because I figured that helped me get in that door. And uh, I used it ever since because it was kind of a good luck charm at that point. And, uh, and that Ben Casey is still a memorable episode for me. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about uh, the life and contribution of uh, D.C. Fontana, Dorothy C. Fontana, Dorothy Catherine Fontana, to Star Trek. She passed away um, recently after a short battle with cancer. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, to, not the telltales out of school. She was supposed to be on the show. We'd reached out yeah. to her to be on the show, and she said that she was in the hospital and that she hoped to be on the show uh, in the future. And uh, you all know, unfortunately, uh, what happened. Um, Dorothy is such an important part of... Uh, of Star Trek. We'll talk about that. We're lucky to have two special guests with us to talk about her amazing legacy, not only to Star Trek, but to television. And uh, um, of course, uh, it's good to have two writers here with us to discuss that legacy. And that's, um, uh, he's the writer of such movies as Thor and X-Men First Class. But he's also been a writer producer on shows like Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, Fringe, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. I'm talking, of course, about Ashley Edward Miller. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. And uh, another writer and, and big fan of uh, DC's is um, uh, our uh, fellow host on 430 Movie. Uh, you know him as a writer for The Clone Wars, um, a Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot, and X-Men the Animated Series, and uh, the, the Emmy Award-nominated, Emmy Award-nominated, Saturn Award-winning Star Wars Rebels. Yeah, uh, yeah. Steve Melching. <laughs> Steve Melching. <laughs> Steve Melching is with yeah. Stephen Melching is with us. Again. Happy to be here. Sorry about the occasion, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, why are we devoting a whole show to DC? Uh, her uh, contribution to Star Trek can't be overestimated. There, there, there there's several people uh, that really made Star Trek what it was. There's, of course, Gene Roddenberry, mm -hmm. Gene L. Coon. Um, Bob Justman, even though he wasn't a writer, yeah. was an essential part of um, that, that alchemy. Yeah. And then there's D.C. Fontana, more so than um, whether it be um, John Meredith Lucas or Fred Freiberg or any of these people. She was there from the very beginning. Um, in fact, she predates the beginning because, of course, she was, uh, after being Del Reisman's assistant, she moved on to become a secretary for Gene Roddenberry. On The Lieutenant. On The Lieutenant, yeah, and, which was his show with Gary Lockwood, right. uh, which was canceled after one season on uh, NBC um, and uh, took place at Camp Pendleton uh, and it was the first show which would start to grapple with real social issues in the context of a, uh, a show that was about you know obviously more than that um, and anybody who's seen the lieutenant knows um, can see a lot of the um, the seeds of Star Trek uh, to a certain extent in lieutenant certainly a lot of the cast but more importantly right. this is where he met DC Fontana I had worked for him directly when his secretary was ill and uh, he knew that I had sold some things, that I wanted to be a writer, a full-time writer. And he called me into his office and said, what do you think of this? And he sh showed me a, about a 10, 12-page piece. It was called Star Trek. And I went home and I read it and I came back the next day and I said, who plays Mr. Spock? I, was the only <laughs> I mean, it was good, but it, it was very basic. It was about the USS Yorktown. It was Captain Robert April, but there was Mr. Spock with... Uh, at that point, he was a Martian, uh, first uh, officer. But uh, I was interested in knowing. 
and he shoved a picture of Leonard Nimoy across the desk at me. Leonard had done a guest star role on The Lieutenant, but he had also been the guest star in the very first story I ever sold to television on The Tall Man. So I knew him. I had met him. And that was great. DC was never shy about expressing her opinions to Gene right. uh, on scripts, on, on material, on actors. A and lot he of was obviously impressed by her, uh, her uh, go-get-iveness and her um, ability to uh, understand and, uh, and uh, correlate story elements. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he had her uh, start to write a little bit on that. Yeah. Now, it would be wrong to suggest that uh, Gene gave her a break because, of course, that's not true. DC had actually been writing uh, for some Westerns before that. True. And interestingly enough, um, uh, the reason she went by the name DC Fontana, not Dorothy Fontana, is because she realized as a woman in that time, in the late 50s, um, that uh, uh, even though there were a lot of women who were writing uh, other types of genres, right. that you were not going to get action Western assignments as a woman, and so by calling herself DC Fontana, it opened up that world. It opened up that her. world to her because yeah. people didn't initially know that she was a, a, a um, you know, she a, could a let woman. The, the work speak for right. itself. Absolutely, initially, yeah, yeah initially, <laughs> until they met her. Obviously, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, <laughs> and uh, you know that's why you know she's such an important figure. I think in terms of, you know, we talk a lot about uh, diversity right now in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. She was really at the forefront of that. And, and she didn't want to get, um, uh, you know, pigeonholed. Uh, and she had such a successful career, you know, after Star Trek mm -hmm. as well. Um, but uh, she she's sort of, you know, one of the more most important, you know, female writers of the era. Um, and uh, when finally Jean gave her her break, uh, she wrote what, you know, is one of the best episodes of season one, which, of course, is uh, Charlie X. In the original Bible, there were a number of stories uh, that were proposed, one of which was Charlie X. And I fell in love with Charlie X. And when uh, I, Jean offered me the opportunity to do a Star Trek script, because I had written nine at that time, uh, other shows, um, I said, I'd like to do Charlie and so Gene Gardner gets credit for the story on that, but I did the script. And I think that um, it was very well realized because it's about a boy who was raised uh, by aliens and with no human contact. And what does that do to you when you now become in contact with real human beings and you have to interact with them, you have to have associations with them? And Charlie didn't know how. He had a temper that lashed out. Uh, he didn't know how to control that because he never had to. So in a way, in part, it's kind of like an abusive parent's, you know, uh, result in how they treat their child and how the child then acts later on as a grown-up or an almost grown-up. Um, it was a story that I felt worked really, really well. And certainly uh, Robert Walker Jr. was excellent. He was outstanding. And uh, it was one of the things I think that, uh, one of the stories I think people remember, because Charlie was in so many ways naive, unschooled, uneducated, and yet there were things he could do that were beyond human powers, but sometimes they were not good for other humans. You know, it, it did such a great job of, she really seemed to understand what Gene wanted out of the show. Right, and, and what was necessary for the show to function correctly and yep. the dynamics between characters and between motivations and uh, the basic tone 
of uh, her stories were incredibly important for establishing that balance between uh, action and drama and and humor. Now, this story may be apocryphal, but a lot of people give her credit for Leonard Nimoy as Spock because when um, you know the original idea for uh, Spock was um, sort of red. A red-hued um, satanic satanic alien. alien with pointed ears who would imbibe uh, food through his stomach, right? Um, like opening up a slot in his stomach, and um, and uh, as that character began to take shape, and I know Sam Peoples had something to do with sort of getting away from the goofiness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it said that DC Fontana was when they said, "How are we going to cast this role?" Had suggested, "Remember Leonard Nimoy from The Lieutenant? Right. He'd be perfect for this role." Right, and. Uh, and, and and obviously he was yeah. perfect. Some for that stories role. have that as uh, Dorothy, and some stories have that as Majel. And I, I'm I'm sure that if we had heard Roddenberry tell it, it would have been Majel. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I I think that might fall in uh, to Dorothy's. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Dorothy. Sure I it. I don't know how much casting advice other than cast me. Myself, yeah, right. <laughs> Major was like uh, was giving. You know, DC was in the office. She was working Absolutely. for Jean day to day, um, yeah. day to day. She was familiar with who had been on the lieutenant. Sure, and uh, you know was very familiar with with with, with Star Trek. Um, you know, and it wasn't always a love fest between her and uh, Jean because, of course, by the time you get to Next Generation, um, she did write the pilot Encounter mm-hmm. Farpoint uh, as an hour pilot, which right. Jean then subsequently expanded into um, a two-hour episode by adding the the, the Q storyline, right. which she was very critical of, uh, feeling that it was a, um, a replay of Squire of Gothos of mm-hmm. Trelane. It was, a, you know, not only fans were saying it, but DC was saying right. it. Um, and also that meant when you write the pilot of a show, you, you continue can... to get money for all the other episodes. Right. And um, uh, so she felt that it was partially Gene you know stepping in to take some of that cash yeah yeah. of course um so tell us a little bit about you know in your mind ashley why gene uh gene why dc is such a legendary figure and why you know she'll be so missed oh my god um there's a there's a whole host of reasons i mean first let's just talk about her uh not just as a writer but as a television writer and one of the jobs of the television writer is is to participate in a collaborative process that that other writers really don't participate in in the same way. Uh, there is, especially for for someone like her, um, who kind of in her career kind of went from show to show, uh, or or worked very specifically with Roddenberry. There is an egolessness uh, to doing that job well. Because part of of what the the television writer has to do uh, when you're not running the show is, you know, find the find the the voice inside of you that that is resonant with and matches the voice of that show creator, uh, and is is finding that ability to to write in a way that feels simpatico with what that that showrunner is doing. Um, and give that that other writer in this case, you know, or in the case of Star Trek, uh, Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, um, scripts that reflect things that that they recognize uh, creatively. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 frankly, maybe she would not have completely written in the same way on her own, and that's fine. 
that's great. And that is such a difficult skill. It is so hard to find um, people who can just consistently deliver great scripts uh, that, you know, that the head writer, that the showrunner can embrace and say, that feels like something I would do. Or it, actually, not even to that. It's it's not just something I would do. That feels like something that, that I admire, that I, I wish I had done and reflects all of my values as a storyteller. That's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that she is in so many ways an example uh, to, to television writers of our generation because I think so many of us grew up on Star Trek. Uh, I, I think that, that her career and her relationship with Roddenberry, her honesty with him, mm-hmm. um, her directness, um, you know, you know, just the way that she emerged as a presence on that show – Yet, without uh, I, I think rancor, I, mm. I, I think is is something that that uh, that that we should all in this business strive to to emulate. Um, and then I, I think the other thing about her is, you know, certainly if you look at her individual episodes and the things that that she contributed, you can you can always tell, right? You can you can you can tell like the the different writers who are doing um, who are contributing different. Things and, and certainly, uh, Dorothy's scripts, Dorothy's stories were, uh, I, I think, iconic. You know, classic Star Trek. Even like the ones that didn't necessarily work, that weren't necessarily her fault. And like I'm looking at you some stuff in in third season, uh, that you know you could you could feel her presence. And for me as a writer, you know, my first gig was on uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, and so much of the storytelling that we did and and so much of what we tried to emulate uh, came from Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Uh, It came from the first stories, the first television stories I truly embraced uh, when I was just, you know, when I was frankly my... My my twins' age, you know, when when I was four, when I was five years old, when I was first exposed to that that show, uh, so you know, she really shaped me as a writer. And my first true professional expression uh, reflected that influence. So to me, you know, her loss is is deeply felt. She was very much of uh, in the original series. She was very much the person that you would go to solve problems. Um, certainly in scripts, they would give her scripts that were uh, written by other writers that didn't fit into the show at all, and she would mold them into their proper and final form. Um, the Way of the Spores was written by someone else yep. and given to her, and she turned it into a Spock love story, This Side of Paradise. There were problems with it in the beginning, and that was all the spores which were affecting people were in a cave. And they were, you know, bubbling up and down and things like this in this pool in the cave. And the answer to that is don't go in the cave. Uh, so my idea was make it all over the planet. You can't avoid it. You, you, you cannot get away from it. You will be affected by the spores, including our crew, as they come down. Uh, the other thing was the love story. And originally it was uh, positive as being for Mr. Sulu and Leila Kailomi. And I adore George Takei, but I said, this is a story for Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. Because with the spores, you get a chance to see who he really is inside and the humanity of him because of his brother, who was human, of course. Uh, we get a chance to see this character as we will never have seen him before. And that was what moved the story. 
but it was working with the character and saying what would happen. How does this grow out of what we know about him now, which was that he had, uh, his father was a, a, an ambassador, a Vulcan ambassador, and his mother was a human teacher, and that was all we knew until we came to the side of paradise. And I expanded on that and gave him more humanity, more feelings, more ways to express those feelings, which he had never had before, really, because this was open. He could do it. Uh, on Vulcan, he could not. I've established that. Um, but here, on this planet, at this time, under this influence, he could be the human we knew was inside Mr. Spock. You know, originally, when Nimoy heard about it, you can't tell you can't tell a love story about Spock. He doesn't have any emotions. This is where uh, DC Fontana took that character and made it uh, three-dimensional. Yeah, I think, actually, it's even better than that, because I think Dorothy you know, said to Leonard, oh, I'm working on a script for you. It's a, a Spock love story. Mm -hmm. And he laughed. He said, right. you can't do that. It's not going to work. And, of course, it's one of the most beloved episodes in Absolutely. the history of Star Trek. Um, because and it told us more about Spock than virtually any other episode right. that he's repressing right. these emotions. It's not that he doesn't have right. emotions. Though and there it, was a little of that in um, Naked Time. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, yes. <clears throat> that sort of touched on that. But she took that and she expanded it fully, immensely. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Steve, for you, I mean, such a legendary figure. I mean, you know, there's that expression, we stand on the shoulder of giants. Yeah. And for anybody who um, works in this business as a writer, you have to know the people that came before you. And, and uh, of course, Del Reisman, who she worked for, was such an important figure. He was former president of the Writers Guild, much like, uh, um, uh, you know, a lot of people that era who were Gene's friends, um, uh, Frank Pearson, stuff like that. What, 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 do you, what do you remember? What makes uh, Dorothy so special to you when you think back? Well, I, you know, to, uh, to briefly touch on what Ashley mentioned before, I mean, this notion of her being, uh, you know, coming up in a time when, before there were writing staffs, when it was the era of the freelancer. And the, the freelance writer had to be someone who could learn a show and sort of subsume their own ego and voice and put it into service of the producer of the show. And all you have to do is look at Dorothy's career longevity to see how good she was at doing that. Yeah. Um, but Dorothy or DC Fontana was one of the first credits I remember remembering mm -hmm. as a kid growing up, uh, growing up in the 70s. Uh, I was too young to watch Star Trek in first run, but uh, I came to the show uh, in the early 70s when it was syndicated uh, and at the same time when the Star Trek animated series was on. So I was got used to seeing her name a lot between those two shows. And, and um, as a child, reading, learning to read and reading the credits of television shows, I didn't understand what a lot of the words meant. I didn't know what a director was or a producer was. But written by was something I understood because I was reading books in school. And and uh, and I realized that written by D.C. Fontana, like, oh, this is like the author of the books that I read. And and that her name was on some of my favorite episodes of Star Trek, it just stuck with me. Like This Side of Paradise is one of my favorites, mm -hmm. or The Ultimate Computer, or Journey to Babel. I mean, she's just written so many, you know, wonderful. Well, well I'm glad you said that because you know she she sort of has gotten to, to Star Trek fans pigeonholed as like, oh my God, she's like she wrote Spock so well. She was the Spock writer. Mm -hmm. But you know, look at first season. I mean, not only did she write This Side of Paradise, oh. but 
Charlie X and Charlie Tomorrow X. Is mm-hmm. Yesterday yeah. are great mm-hmm. Kirk stories. Yes. Yeah. You know, I love Charlie X, and and we were just speaking. You know, sadly, the same week we lost the guest star. Yeah, Charlie Robert X. Walker, Robert Jr. Walker Jr. Yeah. passed away as we're uh, the day we're recording this. Um, so within the same week as Dorothy, it's you know it's really sad because he was just wonderful uh, in the the title role of the right. guest spot role in that episode. Yeah. That it's a strange synchronicity, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then you know, tomorrow's yesterday is mm-hmm. is a really fun. It's not quite comedy, but there's stuff that's very comedic in it. But that's a terrific episode. I certainly remember, you know, certainly when I was younger, that was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. I mean, just the whole mm-hmm. conceit of, um, you know, uh, the Enterprise being thrown back in time and pursued by a fighter craft, and then yep. you know, bringing on, you know, so the audience surrogate, you know, is beamed onto the ship and is, can't believe. Uh, you know, uh, Roger Perry's performance, he's completely <laughs> befuddled by what he sees when he's on board the Enterprise and, and uh, meeting, uh, you know, I never believed, believed in Little Green Men. <laughs> Neither have I. You know, it's, <laughs> it's so wonderful. And again, that's not a, a Spock episode. That's an everyone episode. Yeah, yeah. And so accessible and, and so fun. And it's another episode, I think, that doesn't get the kind of love when we do these top ten lists, but yeah. it's just... Uh, I'm going to lock you up for 200 years. <laughs> that right. ought to be just about I, right. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my other favorite episodes as a kid, and yeah. I just love the idea of this fighter pilot flying up and seeing the Enterprise mm-hmm. in the that sky, that blow yeah. underneath yeah. shot, so, that angle's yep. beautiful. And in in the blue sky, I'm like, that's amazing. I It felt, as a child, like... That could really happen. That's like what it would look like. Yeah. yeah. And we recently were talking on the show about underrated episodes. And, and, and two episodes I think that we all uh, admittedly love that maybe, again, don't show up on the top ten list uh, that she was involved with are, are by any other name, mm-hmm. um, which we were just seeing the praises of recently. And The Ultimate Computer mm-hmm. with Richard Daystrom. I love Which the is Ultimate a great Computer. episode. Yeah, so good. And again, not Spock, if anything, you know, to see this poor Richard Daystrom, the, the boy genius, yeah. uh, you know, who's never lived up to his early potential. He's like the Citizen Kane, uh, Kane, Charles Foster Kane, or the Orson Welles of the Star Trek universe. Yeah, the Gene Roddenberry. Uh, and trying to live up to, uh, you know, his, his uh, you know, what he did in the past. And then he creates, you know, this M5 unit, and it's desperate for it to work. Yeah, building on my work. Yeah. It's a metaphor for <laughs> creating television. At the boy genius. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, it's wonderful because it's also it, that's also a great Kirk episode uh, because you know Kirk is uh, basically laughed at by the other yeah uh, by the other commanders and uh, and it's a lovely scene with uh, McCoy and Kirk again. Yeah. And it's just so well done. I'm not as big a fan of Friday's Child, but that largely has to do with Ty Andrews and the awful costumes in that yeah. episode. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little uneven. Yeah. yeah. But even in that episode, there's some really great moments. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a good McCoy episode, you know? Indeed. And uh, she, was, she was good at, uh, at dealing with McCoy as well. And uh, not a lot of people know, but she wrote an episode in... Uh, the later in the third season uh, that was intended to be about McCoy's daughter. Yeah, it was called Joanna. And uh, it was later changed into uh, The Way to Eden uh, and rewritten. Um, but uh, when I was working with uh, James Cauley and the uh, uh, Star Trek Phase Two New Voyages, we were going to do that script. Oh, and I was, I was going to direct that for them. And um, uh, it was uh, she was going to do a rewrite for us mm. 
for uh, for Joanna to uh, to tighten it up and make it make it workable, um, because she had already done a script for them called uh, To Serve All My Days, which is about Chekhov. And Walter Koenig came up and he played Chekhov in it. And it was a, a really great story about how, uh, through an incident, Chekhov is old and he is dying. And he basically lives out his life uh, on the Enterprise and dies on the Enterprise. It's a really fascinating story. Look it up. It's uh, somewhere on YouTube these days. But she was so good at uh, at helping people who are fans and uh, and uh, uh, interested people uh, in her work and in creative endeavors she was so good at uh, helping people and it was, it's, a, it's a tremendous loss we we're feeling it very strongly yeah no I, I mean I had the opportunity to meet her a couple of times because not only did I interview for the book but many times in the past but also uh, for the history of Star Trek documentary I did for the History Channel and she was always willing you always think oh god am I going to get Dorothy you know she's going to want to still talk about this is she still you know and, and she was always willing to talk about Star Trek and share her stories and you know what I liked about her was that she was willing to speak truth to power mm-hmm. you know that she wasn't one that told Roddenberry what he wanted to hear you know she would speak up and it became right. a problem on Next Generation where right. he was less tolerant of that right. um, but also with Gene Kuhn you see it in the memos mm-hmm. where she said uh, you know she criticized how many times are we going to talk a computer to death how many right. times <laughs> are we going to pull the cord of my blood you know that we were repeating ourselves too often mm-hmm. she said we, 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 we need to change it up and so you know, I love the fact that, you know, same thing with Bob Justman. It's like you, if you read the memos and, and, and we should definitely make some of those available online at Inglorious Trek on Twitter and Inglorious Trek Experts on Instagram, um, you can really see how much she understood the show and how much she wasn't afraid to express her opinions. And I think that's part of the reason why Jean started giving her scripts, because she had such insightful comments about what was coming through, um, because early on, you know, Jean and... Um, John D.F. Black were really at loggerheads. He was the story editor. And I think, you know, uh, John had a very different approach to Star Trek and also didn't want to rewrite uh, these sci-fi legends that they were hiring. Whereas we know that it was often necessary to rewrite these quote-unquote sci-fi legends, you know, to with the Harlan Ellison uh, situation, which Dorothy had a huge hand in. Gene Kuhn and Dorothy um, uh, uh, worked on City a lot. They both had a lot to do with that rewrite. Um, Neither get credit for it. Um, And in fact, you know, Dorothy talked about how it was very hard for her to admit, to own up to it, but she was very good friends with Harlan Ellison, that she was, you know, a big part of rewriting that script. Part of the coup. I I can tell you, like from personal experience, without naming names, that uh, these great science fiction prose writers are not always necessarily great dramatists. Mm Mm-hmm or even very effective dramatists. And so they do require rewriting. Yet I also understand the, uh, the reluctance to, um, to note them to death or to sure. kind of get into, into what they've done. So it's, I, I can see both sides of it, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, she's right. You know, you, you have to get in there and kind of make the show uh, your own. But it's fascinating. I didn't realize that that Black had that issue with those guys. Oh yeah, I mean he 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 was he was introducing Gene to a lot of his sci-fi writer friends, and you know they were promising them all this autonomy and how great to write on a show that valued science fiction and valued them as as great science fiction writers. And then Gene would rewrite them. This is the beginning of first season where he's really 
you know, shaping the show. And John D.F. Black was like, you can't rewrite, you know, these people. And, you know, well, you can't rewrite Ted Sturgeon. Yeah, you can't can't rewrite. And, 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 and it was, you know, it was part of the reason why John D.F. Black ended up leading the show, particularly when John D.F. Black started getting rewritten right. so uh, much. Um, I can rewrite any script that comes in here. It's my show. So I decide what gets rewritten. <laughs> and I usually do the rewriting. And, and, you know, uh, look, it's a fine line, but anybody who's worked in TV knows that sometimes it's necessary, particularly when it's the showrunner, the vision, quote unquote, for the show, and that, uh, you know, they may not quite get it. They may be, may, it may, what they may be doing may work for another show, but it may not work for that show. Especially when you're in the process of building the superstructure that is the show. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And establishing those characters. Yeah. You know, you don't have, uh, you know, crewmen selling the jewels of sound. So, um, anyway. it's like uh, Robert Wolf once said to me I don't need you to get the ball in the end zone I just need you to get it down the field right right and as showrunner Andromeda he could take it home exactly yeah yeah well speaking of showrunners uh, you know DC ultimately did move in a, a meet with an immovable object that did not find her charming and helpful which of course was Fred Freiberger um, mm. so by the third season when she's pitching Johanna mm. which is you know um, and even I have to admit, there's a memo where Gene is saying, "Yeah, she keeps bringing this one up," and right. um, you know, so even he wasn't necessarily on board with it. But it was a really interesting idea for an episode, mm-hmm. you know, meeting McCoy's daughter. And even in the 1960s, it was sort of daring to have the fact that McCoy was divorced, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he had this uh, grown-up daughter, um, and and that eventually mutated. And I think mutating is the right word into the way to literally, Eden. yes. Um, uh, because it ended up becoming a love story for Chekhov, and that came from Fred Freiberger feeling they want he wanted to do a, a Chekhov a young, story, a young, a young episode, a yeah. young episode. And since he felt it was dealing with the quote unquote hippies, they should involve their young character. The kids should love this one, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they will for fifty years. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and it's it's a terrible episode, but um, you know the DNA of it is is Joanna. Um, was that also sort of the DNA to Star Trek Two? This notion that Kirk. Has an adult son? No, and... that was a whole Nick Mara thing. I think okay. I don't think um, I, I. You know, it wasn't. It didn't have its. Although Harv Bennett does talk about early in the process, he did meet with a lot of original Star Trek writers, and he knew Dorothy from Six Million Dollar Man, mm. um, and he was very dismissive. You know, he felt right. like he he felt, and this may be true that everybody would come in with a chip on their shoulder that they knew Star Trek better than him, whether it be right. Sam Peoples or Dorothy Fontana, and they, they had very rigid um, ideas of what Star Trek should be. Because they did. Mm. Yeah, because they did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, he he wasn't a big fan of, uh, you know, a lot of the, the Star Trek writers that right. would come in. But then he, you know, even when back in the day when Paramount would hire somebody like Robert Silverberg mm-hmm. to do a take on Star Trek motion picture, um, it rarely worked. You know, they had these big, heady sci-fi ideas, but they, they never really... I mean, they remember they the Harlan Ellison, right. you know, came in and, and, you know, was pitching. And everyone was adamant that only they understood Star Trek. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what Dorothy did, um, because, of course, you know, she did work on um, uh, Ted Sturgeon's Amok Time, which, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, which really helped define the Vulcans for all time. But even more than that, Journey to Babel, where you meet uh, right. Babel, where you right. meet um, Spock's parents. Spock's parents, which is such a wonderful episode. Combines everything about Star Trek. Um, it, it, there's a great idea at the heart of it. There's fabulous aliens. Um, there, there's a wonderful personal story between the family and the estranged son mm-hmm. from his parents. Um, and the idea of Amanda being the half human 
the you know the Vulcanian father and the, right. the human mother you know who who you know finds it uh, infuriating to put up with uh, the lack of emotion in her husband and her. Why did you marry her? But um, uh, and this is, but it's also a great Kirk episode, you know, because of course he gets wounded by the Andorian right. and uh, ends up going to the uh, you know the bridge just so Spock will give up command, and uh, then the ship gets attacked and. You know, as he's stumbling back to sick bay, he's like, I know he stays on the bridge. I mean, it's 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 a great episode, um, and it's it's fascinating that years later, when she's working as the story editor of the animated show, and writes this amazing episode called Yesteryear, mm-hmm. where we go back in time and and discover Spock as a child and see that dynamic, and see uh, what his uh, you know, briefly what his family life was like and what he was like as a child. It's immensely um, enjoyable and fulfilling to see the seeds of that character and how they how they started to develop. And, and it worked great in 2009, too. Uh, <laughs> well, that's another thing, because a lot of stuff is grabbed from uh, other sources that are uncredited. And that's uh, that's an interesting uh, sort of problem there, but um, uh, yeah, all the all the good parts of that came from Dorothy. Yeah, well, and it's it's really interesting. But she was a huge booster for Star Trek, and even after she left in season three, and I think like for people like Bob Justman and DC Fontana, who've been since they were there since the beginning, expected to be handed the keys to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So it was very upsetting, I think, for both of them when Fred Freiberger was given, right. you know, the con, so to speak. Right. And, you know, they left I to do other things. I was skipped over. <laughs> <laughs> I was passed over, Michael. And um, I'm the older brother. Um, but um, Imagine that alternate universe. <laughs> but DC Fontana then, you know, came back to Star Trek in a big way you know, because basically all Gene wanted out of the cartoon was to keep the franchise alive, mm-hmm. you know, keep selling Lincoln Enterprise and stuff right. yeah. with the hopes of this leading to a live action. It's like, oh, we got the cartoon and it keeps it alive. Yeah. D. Kelly's like, isn't this going to kill the franchise? He says, no, it's going to remind people to exist. Right. But he didn't want to have anything to do with it, you know. Um, so, you know. Yeah, he didn't want to deal with the day-to-day. Yeah, making a half-hour cartoon. Yeah, screw so, that. So, so <laughs> it's a lot DC, of damn work. Yeah, so it is. <laughs> DC Fontana comes in. And she knows exactly what to do. In 1973, Roddenberry called me up. We had dinner, and he said, uh, Filmation is talking about doing this animated series for Star Trek. I said, well, that's cool. And he said, I want you to be on it. And we did go. NBC bought it. And we did a 22 episodes in a year and a half, basically. I was only on the first 16 episodes as story editor, associate producer. And I worked closely with the writers. And the glory of uh, the animated show was we could do anything on any planet, any kind of creature, any sort of situation uh, that you could dream of that could be drawn uh, was there on the film. And um, it was all done in Sherman Oaks, California, and, or Tarzana, Tarzana, California, uh, by people working at Filmation. It was all hand done. Uh, it's, you know, artists sitting there painting in the, the cells and all of that stuff. The one big technological advance we had was you could Xerox the black and white cells that were uh, standard cells for backgrounds or maybe facial expressions, things like that. You could Xerox those, but they still had to be painted in by hand by artists in the, in the, uh, in the company. So um, what that allowed us to do was, again, stories we could not really have done well on the original series because of crazy creatures or great planetscapes and things like that that we just couldn't afford to do, but we could do it on the animation. So. 
the one in the second season, um, written by Russell Bates and Robert uh, David Wise, uh, won the Humanitas Award, and that was the one, the one major award that Star Trek won up to that point. And you can't, you know, she was not involved with the second season because the second season was a bunch of scripts they didn't make for the first season. Right. Um, but she was involved in the first season of um, the animated series. And, you know, what she does with no time, no money, you know, uh, filmation animation, mm-hmm. which is... Some of the most know, primitive, most. rudimentary animation. Uh, is incredible. I mean, yeah. we talked about <laughs> yesteryear, <laughs> but there's some, you know, um, there's Jihad, there's... Um, uh, what the Larry Niven one, uh, Slaver Weapon, Slaver right. Weapon, which is fantastic. Um, there is um, there's some, the one, we've talked about one a planet is missing. Um, one of our planets, one of our planets, of our planets is missing. Um, there's some great episodes of that show that would and it great had been big science fiction ideas mm-hmm. that could uh, easily be considered the fourth season of the original series. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly with better animation. Um, and and she and she took it very seriously, and Absolutely. she brought back a yeah, lot of writers from the of, original yeah, show. Yeah. Larry Brody, not Larry Brody, but he, Larry Brody wrote one. But um, bringing back a, a lot of writers um, who had worked on the show. Well, Sam Peoples wrote the pilot of it, the, yeah. um, Beyond the Farthest Star. That's right. And mm-hmm. then uh, we just, there were sequels to uh, Once Upon a Planet. Right. Sequel to uh, Stephen Candell wrote came Much back Passion. and wrote Much, Much Passion, which is a terrific little yeah. episode until yeah. it becomes Killing the Dinosaur. Right. Um, and more more troubles, more. Tr- Another sequel to Tribbles that David Gerald wrote, um, much more successful than Bem, which was sort of a fourth season cast off. Um, and uh, but again, even that 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 uh, um, you know, and 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 she didn't feel she was slumming. Right. She no. took it very seriously. And that's what's so special about this show because this is a a, a dark time for television animation. I I feel in the seventies was a time of just cheap, you know, cash-ins, try, mm-hmm. uh, 30-minute commercials for toys or, and, or, you know, vehicles to sell sugar cereal. Right. And the Star Trek show, Dorothy and her crew took the material very seriously. Right. They, I think they did view it as a fourth season of the original show. And they had most of the cast back mm-hmm. uh, playing their characters and um, really set out to make compelling real Star Trek stories. Yeah. That and, and watching this as a kid in the 70s, this was, this was mind-blowing stuff. I mean, this was not, you know, the wacky racers or whatever. Yeah. No. And, and Steve, you worked in animation for so long. The challenges must have been monumental because uh, the expectations were so low. Well, yeah, I can only imagine, you know, I mean, we're we're in a very different era now for animation. But, um, you know, as, as we alluded to before, it's it's really not any less work to make an animated series than mm-hmm. a live action series or, or, you know, a half hour series versus an hour series. Certainly not for the writing staff. It's, yeah, it's exactly. Mm-hmm. The yeah, same. yeah. Yeah. You're still writing a script. Yeah. The key grip works a little bit less. But <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and in a show like the Star Trek, the animated series, you know, Dorothy is holding the writing to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the you know they're they're really working hard, and and Dorothy is working hard to shepherd these scripts through and and make sure they're of you know sufficient quality to, yeah. to and um, and I, I can only imagine you know working for filmation and you know Lou Scheimer, Norm Prescott, you know they, they didn't have a lot of money I don't no. think for this show and. No. You know, between the writing and the cast and the music, which is just wonderful. 
Uh, and they spent they were spending more money on the voice. You know, it wasn't just uh, you know Casey Kasem doing eight voices. Right. They had uh, you know Leonard made them cast. George I was going to say that was made the, them cast. Yeah, so that was Leonard asked demanded that they and hired Michelle. the rest of the. Yeah, the only one who who he didn't go to bat for was Walter, because yeah. he said he wasn't part of the original, right. the original crew. But um, you know, he forced them. They were going to have you know Jimmy do and do Sulu and right. and Majel do Ahura, yeah. and it was Leonard. You know, so I mean, you know, it kept adding costs uh, to to the show, and uh, they didn't have a lot of money to start with, and they didn't have a lot of time. Right. So I mean, you know, and it's funny because then she works on a bunch of shows, um, you know. Um, Bob Justman hired her for Then Came Bronson. Mm -hmm. She worked on Bonanza, one of his 9,000 seasons uh, that was working. <laughs> Here Come the Brides. But I really didn't really uh, connect and hear her name again until, of all things, uh, Fantastic Journey. Right. Remember, mm -hmm. that was a show one, about the yeah. Bermuda Triangle in the Half a season, one season. Yeah, but she had been very involved with that. And uh, America was agog with Bermuda Triangle fever. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> it was a wild thing. It was like the time of Chariots of the Gods. And yes. Bermuda Triangle. That's all that people could talk about, at least I, as I remember it. And then there was, um, you know, her and David Gerald both worked on Land of Lost, which um, so if good. you can get past Sid and Marty Croft, you know, zero budget production uh, mm. values, it's there's some stories. really great stuff going right. on there. Right. And some interesting stories. And also uh, art direction by Herman Zimmerman. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. One of my other favorite shows as a kid growing up in the 70s, you know, Star Trek the Animated Series was a very sort of seminal uh, show for me to watch. And uh, Land of the Lost, you know, being a, a young boy, seeing dinosaurs sure. in live action on the big screen was you know, the, the, the buy-in. Right. But then you'd stay for these really trippy, interesting stories that they that they told. It was just supposed to be a routine expedition. Yeah. Uh, Three-hour tour. That's why I still think there's a great movie in Land of the Lost, if oh, somebody yeah. does it straight. Because yeah. it had aliens, it had, um, with the sleaze stacks, right. it had this really great concept. Instead of trying to figure out, like, DNA, they recreated dinosaurs. You go back and there are dinosaurs everywhere. And right. Chaka. Um, when the walls fell, you know, and then, <laughs> and then there was, uh, you know, she was story editor on the Logan's Run TV series, That's right? Which also had a bit of a Trek pedigree. It wasn't a particularly good show. Yeah, it, it, it was hampered by budget again. But look at the source material, and it also CBS was not exactly the home for quality science right. fiction, right. and and they had no model for putting it together. You know, they're basically saying, you know, um, we had this movie. She was involved in the development of Buck Rogers in the 21st Century. Um, she oh, wrote, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. She, and she was um, she wrote uh, Planet of the Amazon Women under a pseudonym ah, uh, because you yeah. start to see that a lot more in her work right? Uh, where she's using pseudonym because she's being rewritten. She's not happy with um, the way that uh, the shows are being changed. She starts to do a lot more animation also. Mm -hmm. um, but it isn't really until... Um, Next year, and, and and Joe Straczynski, a good friend of hers, uh, she she wrote a couple of episodes of Babylon Five before right. he started to write every episode, right. um, where he was hiring a lot of these legendary science fiction figures like Harlan. Um, but you know, back when Gene Roddenberry starting Next Generation, he brings back the whole gang: Bob Justman, um, uh, uh, Bill Tice. Um, right. You know, when he's starting, and of course DC and David. Now this is where it's. The story takes a darker turn yep. because, of course, uh, Dorothy, uh, you know, and Gene had very divergent views of what Next Generation should be. Right. And then you worked throughout the 70s steadily on a bunch of fabulous shows, and you got roped into uh, the relaunch of Star Trek, which is, uh, you know, certainly the antithesis of the sort of charmed experience you had on the original Star Trek. Can you tell us a little bit about Star Trek coming back to television and 
your initial feelings about it and maybe how it ultimately disappointed you? Star Trek Next Generation? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Gene Roddenberry called me and uh, said, let's go to dinner, he and Majel and I, and uh, he was talking about a new version of Star Trek, bouncing off uh, the movies, of course. Uh, and I said, well, that's interesting, Gene, what do you got in mind? And uh, he came up with the basics uh, for the older captain, uh, for the characters that we see in Star Trek Next Gen. And uh, I was okay with that. Uh, he asked me would I please write the, uh, the pilot script uh, encounter at Farpoint. And I said, fine, did that. But I was being bounced back and forth between, is it an hour, is it a, an hour and a half, is it a two hour? I finally wrote a 90 minute script. And uh, the question had been whether Gene Roddenberry would do you know, like a retrospective back to the original Star Trek to lead into this, or would he add to my pilot script. He added to my pilot script. He added, he added all the stuff that had to do with Q, which I didn't particularly care for, but it's not my choice. Um, and that was the first thing that was a little disappointing. Uh, and I had to share that script credit with him. Of course, he wrote the material. That's okay. Um, and then after that, as a story editor, I was not terribly well treated. Um, things went over my head uh, that I could have had input in and uh, so forth. Um, I stayed for the first 13 episodes and then I left. It was not a terribly happy experience, although working with those actors was very good because they were all solid, good actors who knew their jobs and delivered. So that was the, seeing it come off the page, on the stage and back onto the screen, that was good. Uh, I think most of those first 13 were pretty decent stories. Uh, I didn't always have a say in them, but uh, you know, I, I was not disappointed in them in, in particular. By this time, Gene had been already doing his uh, his lecture tours and getting a lot of feedback from the fans and adulation and began believing his own press releases. Mm-hmm. And convinced himself that the Star Trek that he was selling was the Star Trek that everybody had bought. Right. Although, if you listened, you know, and you see the conception of that show... Um, you know, Dorothy and David, who wrote the original series Bible for Gene, how much they had a hand in formulating what Next Generation would ultimately become. Indeed. A Klingon on the bridge, which something Gene fought against adamantly. Right. And so, you know, I think Dorothy made a major contribution to Next Generation, even though you look at, you know, you look at what her credits were, the pilot, and then mm -hmm. she has um, a, a couple of pseudonyms later, the Lee right. Cronin version of her right. name. Uh, we're too short a season in a couple of these early episodes. And she, she, she also pitched Deep Space Nine, has a credit on Dax, although um, ultimately that was sort of taken over by the staff. Mm -hmm. But she goes on and, and it continues to be a mentor mm -hmm. uh, to people, uh, super accessible, works in TV for many years after that, um, and uh, is just, just an extraordinary person. We, you know, we say in the history of Star Trek, but in the history of, of TV history writers of, and, and of writers yeah. yeah and and you can't overstate it and it's such a loss um, because again she was one of the few conduits we have left to the 60s series so many people passed away um, uh, you know last year John D.F. Black the story editor mm -hmm. passed away you know we talked about Robert Walker Jr. Um, you know other than a few cast uh, and we have Barry Mason coming to Inglorious Trek Experts right. next year um who worked on at Film Effects of Hollywood, but so few of those original people who worked on Star Trek um, are left. And, you know, Dorothy was 80 years old when she passed away of cancer. And uh, she knew the real stories. It wasn't secondhand. It wasn't thirdhand. And those people who can tell those firsthand stories and 
you know, the people who can talk about Gene Alcoon, mm-hmm. you know, and when uh, me and Ed Gross were writing about Gene, you know, DC and David were essential. Most of the other people who, who knew Gene had passed away other than Robert Wagner. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Glenn Larson's gone, mm-hmm. Lee Kolodny, a lot of these people. But, uh, you know, we should wrap up by just saying, you know, what's your what's your what's your favorite DC Fontana episode, Steve Melching? Oh, my God. Yesteryear. I mean, that was, you know, in 22 minutes, she just makes you think and makes you just weep. It's such a, a moving episode. Even all these years later, it's uh, just mm-hmm. a terrific half hour of television yeah. and of Star Trek. And uh, I, I, I love that one, too. But I think uh, I, I really love this side of paradise. Yeah. Uh, it has some incredibly moving moments, incredibly funny moments, incredibly uh, action-packed. I mean, you know, Kirk and Spock fighting in the transporter room mm. and, and uh, you know, throwing back right and forth. Right next to insults. the dog-faced boy. It's just, it's just so good. <laughs> and, of, of course, for the first time in my life, I was happy. Oh, and it has that great line, heart. Yeah. this is mutiny, mister. Yes, it is. It's just so, so beautiful. Yeah. Um, what about you, Ash? Uh, you know what? I'm going to go a little bit out of the box and say the Enterprise incident. Great mm. choice. That's a good one. And and even she says, as much as Freiberger screwed her her, her writing up, it's the least screwed up, she says, yeah. that, yeah. and that's why she kept her name on it. Right. Because she said, yes, it got ruined, but it didn't get ruined as badly as it could have. Right. And she stands by it, and it's a wonderful episode, you know, loosely based on the Pueblo incident with the Pueblo right. getting, uh, um, um, when it got captured. Um but what a really terrific episode that is. And I would have to say um, a Planet of the Amazon Women, the Buck Rogers episode. Awesome. No, <laughs> I, I actually uh, – it was Journey to Babel for me. Oh, yeah. I, I love Journey to Babel. Um, and I, I think that it's all well, of – Well, now all we of, know how you vote. It's all <laughs> <laughs> It's all a Vulcan in one package. Oh, so yes. um, anyway, uh, he, he, she's someone who will be dearly missed, uh, a Star Trek legend. I hope we don't have to do too many of these shows for a long time. But uh, we will always remember, you know, what an astounding uh, writer and person uh, she was. And uh, and uh, I'm really glad that we can honor her by uh, doing this episode uh, today. So, uh, Steve, thank you very much for joining us on the Glorious Trexperts. Ashley, always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Darren. Um, and uh, I want to remind you there are all new episodes of Inglorious Trexperts every Saturday. Um, and we hope you'll join us next Saturday for an all-new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Until then, uh, thank you to Bill Ritter, Natalie Miscali, our producer, and, of course, Dean Devlin, without whom the show would not be possible. Live long and prosper, and keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Shh! Engage. Your advice would be as somebody who has, uh, you know, really put their imprintor and created, you know, a, a legend uh, with the original Star Trek. You know, obviously captioning lightning in a bottle is virtually impossible, but what would your advice be to them as, as, as someone who's done it before and been very successful at uh, creating some beloved characters and, and certainly some of the greatest episodes of all time? Write stories you care about. Write stories that reach out and tell other people's stories. If you touch their hearts, you've got them glued to that TV set next week. Uh, you have to do it intelligently, obviously. You have to do it with a talent and ability, but those stories are there. And they're in the heart. And that's where your stories should always come from. Do you think we'll still be talking about Star Trek in another 50 years? Will it continue? Oh, I'm here to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) The show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production. (laughs) 